Take your Bibles and turn with me, if you would please, to 1 Peter chapter 4 as we continue our journey through the little book of 1 Peter, uh, talking this morning on the subject matter, living with perseverance. Living with perseverance. We'll be looking today at chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word, please? Beginning there in verse 12, uh, Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Father, we thank you for the encouraging words that Peter has been writing in this book about how we're to be steadfast and we are to live with boldness and with conviction. We are strangers in this world, pilgrims passing through. We're not like this world. Because of that, sometimes we will face opposition, mockery, rejection, Perhaps even outright persecution. But God, may we live faithfully regardless of what you bring into our lives. Help us to be steadfast and true for your name's sake. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. George Matheson was born in Glasgow, Scotland in March of 1842. At birth, his eyesight was very poor. By the time he was 18 years of age, he was virtually altogether blind. He became a dynamic believer and follower of Christ and he never felt it unusual that he should have to suffer or have hardship in his life. He writes, There's a time coming in which your glory shall consist in the very things which now constitute your pain. Nothing could be more sad to Jacob than the ground on which he was lying, a stone for his pillow. It was the hour of his poverty. It was the season of his night. It was the seeming absence of his God. And yet the Lord was in that place and he knew it not. Awakened from his sleep, he found that the day of his trial 
was instead the dawn of his triumph. Ask the great ones of the past what has been the spot of their prosperity, he writes. And they will all say it was the cold ground on which I was lying. Ask Abraham. He will point to the sacrifice on Mount Moriah. Ask Joseph. He will direct you to his dungeon. Ask Moses. He will date his fortune from his danger in the Nile. Ask Ruth. She will bid you build her monument in the field of her toil. Ask David. He will tell you that his songs came in the night. Ask Job. He will remind you that God answered him out of the whirlwind. Ask Peter. He will extol his submersion in the sea. Ask John. He will give the path to Patmos. Ask Paul. He will attribute his inspiration to the light which struck him blind. Ask one more. The very Son of God. Ask him whence has come his rule over the world. He will answer from the cold ground on which I was lying. The Gethsemane ground I received my scepter there. Matheson's point of course is that if we could somehow or another interview all of the saints of old and if we could ask them questions like these they would all say the very same thing. They never thought of the Christian life as anything other than a life of trials and difficulties. And yet they knew at the same time that at the end of their journey there was glory when they would see their Savior face to face. Now folks, that's similar to what uh, Peter is saying here in this little epistle. Chuck Swindoll writes of 1 Peter, he says, Life itself, like life itself, the book of 1 Peter presents constant reminders of the reality of suffering. The consummate realist, Peter, has made no attempt to sugarcoat the bitter truth that believers should expect to face and not escape various trials in their lifelong journey. But Peter is no cynic either. He consistently directs us toward the hope that God will bring about his redemptive plan through periods of pain. I think it's unique that on this Lord's Supper Sunday we continue to be in this section of the letter where Peter is dealing with suffering. A little bit later in the service today we'll celebrate Christ's suffering that accomplished our redemption. The Bible says the just died for the unjust that he might bring us to God. We'll be reminded that as followers of Christ, we will suffer too. And God has a plan and a purpose in our suffering. Just like he had a plan and a purpose in Christ's suffering. Christ suffered as our substitute. To be our propitiation for sin, he died on the cross that through him we might have access to God. For all of those who come to faith in him and are the redeemed of the Lord. It is Christ's suffering that accomplished that. Peter's point has been that God has a plan and a purpose in your suffering too. 
through your suffering, through trials and tribulation and hardship in your life, God is molding character and maturity in you. He's conforming you to the image of Christ so that not only your intimacy with God will grow, but also so that your witness to a lost and a dying world will be all the more profound. Now let's see what this text has to say about that. First of all, he talks about the privilege of suffering. We've only got two points this morning, and let me go ahead and warn you that we're going to be in point number one almost the whole time. So don't fret, don't get worried, okay, when the time elapses. But first of all, Peter talks about the privilege of suffering. And notice the very first thing he has to say about that in verse 12, that it is to be expected. He says in verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised. Have you ever heard Christians when they're going through hardship, maybe somebody has made a comment to you like, Why am I having to go through this? What's God up to? Where is God? Has God abandoned me? Has God forgotten me? Why am I having to go through this valley? Why am I having to suffer? Why has God brought this into my life at this particular time? You've probably heard people say something like that. It's like we are surprised when we face difficulties and trials. It's like we think we're loftier than that. And for some reason or another, we're supposed to be exempt. We know what all of the saints of God have experienced through the ages. But somehow or another, we think we're supposed to be spared some of what the saints have gone through. I think this morning if you could interview Christians who live in Iraq or Christians who live in Egypt or Christians who live in Syria, if we could interview them this morning, they might state that they're a little bit surprised that, they, that uh, Christians in the West tend to think we're supposed to be spared. Sometimes even Christian leaders propagate this mentality. The health and wealth prosperity preachers. That if you'll only have enough faith, if you're going through something difficult, it's because you don't have enough faith. If you only have enough faith, you wouldn't be going through that. If you only have enough faith, your bank accounts would be full. You'd never have to go to the doctor. You've heard them. You've, you've seen them on TV. Sometimes they propagate this mentality. Well, oftentimes they do propagate that mentality in their Christian message. Although I beg to differ that it's really a Christian message. But they try to tell us that we should. The Bible tells us we're going to expect hardship and suffering. We're going to go through it. And they try to tell us we're not. Several months ago when Ivadi and I went to Cameroon, Africa, this is one of the topics that John Abrams asked me to address in one of the uh, theology sessions I taught. 
the American health and wealth gospel has landed down unfortunately full force on the African continent and it's causing pastors and Christians a great deal of confusion and pain there and so John told me he said it's killing us would you please address it from an in-depth theological angle five of the pastors in the class were from Nigeria next door where Boko Haram is active and some say that Boko Haram might even be worse than ISIS one of those pastors told me that some months back when Boko Haram was coming through their area and persecuting Christians they had to remain locked in their home, barricaded in their home. They couldn't even go outside for a period of three weeks and they had to eat whatever was in the pantry until all that was gone and they had nothing but crackers and water left. On Thursday of that week, that same pastor, Leo and I, the guy who leads the center there, Leo and I were outside of the big conference room in a little lobby area, front lobby area, and that same pastor came running out to Leo and said, can I please borrow your phone for some reason? I can't call back home. He said, have you heard what's going on in Nigeria this week with their leader and how he had kind of disappeared and, and, and he was a mother? Muslim and the vice president was a Christian and so the Muslims were thinking somehow or another the Christians had poisoned the president so their guy could get in and so there was all kinds of, of persecution that the radical Muslims were doing and he said I'm desperate to hear from my wife that everything is okay back home and there in front of us he called her and she said, we're okay for now. She said, we're barricaded in the home again and locked up. And I've got the kids safe, I hope. And we're not going outside. We're just trying to be real quiet. And I sat there and thought, we have no idea of what people have to go through. None. Since I've been back, of course, those guys have been contacting me. Come to Nigeria and what you taught in Cameroon, teach us. Let us get our pastors together. And, and I thought, you know what? That's their daily norm of what they go through. They live in that. How could I not go over there for maybe a week or two? If, I take some, if some of you were to go with me, how could we not go and help them? We have no clue what people go through. Whenever believers go through suffering, they may be surprised, they may be disillusioned, they may be discouraged, but Peter is saying just the opposite here. He's saying, beloved, do not be surprised. If we had time this morning, we could back up all the way to the book of Genesis and walk through to the book of Revelation, and we would discover that the saints of God have always had to suffer. I don't know why that we sometimes think we're supposed to be spared. Now scholars have wrestled a bit with the exact nature of the trials that Peter's readers are going through. You see the worst of the persecution hasn't broken out yet. They're just right at the front end of it. It's believed that they were beginning to feel some of the initial pressures from Emperor Nero. 
Listen to what one writer says about what was going on. He says, and I quote here, For nine days during the summer of AD 64, a huge fire raged in the city of Rome. The flames spread rapidly through the city's narrow streets and the many bunched wooden tenements ordinarily crowded with residents because of his well-known desire to refurbish and rebuild Rome by whatever means the general population believed that Emperor Nero himself was responsible for starting the fires as the fire burned for three days and nights and destroyed most of the city's districts, Nero watched gleefully from a nearby tower. Roman troops prevented people from extinguishing the fire and even started new fires. The disaster thoroughly demoralized the Romans because many lost nearly all of their earthly goods and found their civic pride scorched as well. With public resentment toward Nero at a high level, he diverted the focus away from himself and made the Christian community the scapegoat for the fire. Christians were the easy scapegoats because Christians were going around preaching. God had destroyed, the Bible teaches God destroyed the earth first time through a flood, the next time through a fire. And so he capitalized on that and blamed Christians. It was a clever tactic that he used because Christians in Rome were already hated and despised and slandered. You see, Christians would not worship all of the Roman gods and idols. And the Romans believed that the good of the empire depended on pacifying their idols and their gods. And because Christians would not worship all of the Roman gods, they thought it would bring the disfavor of those gods. And so they were already blaming Christians for the demise of the Roman Empire. And so it was easy to blame them. They also believed that because of the Lord's Supper, that Christians were cannibals. Because Jesus talked in John 6 about drinking his blood and eating his flesh. They were also against Christians because a man ruled his household with an iron fist and his wife and children had to go along with him in whatever his faith was. And you had some of the uh, women turning to Christ and turning away from the Roman idols and here was the husband still wanting the family to worship the idols and here's the wife who was supposed to follow him and she's now worshiping Jesus Christ and so it caused division in the families. And then in the church, they were greeting one another as brothers and sisters and extending to one another a holy kiss. And so it was believed that somehow or another, Christians were engaged in incest. So on and on and on, the slanders went, the false accusations. And so Nero had easy scapegoats to blame, and the Romans went along with his plot there. And so as you can see, public opinion was against them. 
And so what Nero would do, he began taking long poles. He was known to have beautiful guards and he, he would bind Christians on the end of long poles. He would dip them in a tar-like material. Now keep bear in mind, they're still alive. He would dip them in tar-like material bound to these poles. He would prop them up in his beautiful garden, set them on fire at night, and they became torches for his gardens. He would have animal skin, a Christian sewn inside of animal skins and he would put them out in the arenas and let wild doll, packs of dogs and lions and so forth tear them to shreds and they did this for entertainment and sport. Some in Peter's audience, this is the type of stuff they were beginning to deal with. And some of them might have been saying, why? Why? Why, would, why is God letting this happen? And Peter's saying, don't be surprised. It's to be expected. Jesus, after all, in John 15, had said, they hated me, they'll hate you too. The servant is not greater than the master. So it's to be expected. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, all those who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. If we take a bold stand for our faith in a culture that is upside down, that lives in darkness, and we're trying to be salt and light, there will be some opposition that occurs to us. And Peter has been trying to tell us if there's not opposition, maybe, just maybe we're blending in too much with the culture and we need to repent of sin and we need to get back to living out our faith a little more. But again, if we do, he's saying there'll be a price to pay. Don't be surprised. Not only is it to be expected, it is to be esteemed. Verse 13, notice he says, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. We share in Christ's sufferings. What he means here is that when we suffer because of our allegiance to Christ, we share in the same sufferings that came to him. We are identified with him, and so we can rejoice in this. Because Christ's promise to his followers is that if we suffer with him, we shall also be glorified with him. The Apostle Paul said in Romans 6, if we die with him, we shall also live with him. Remember Acts 5.41, it says that the apostles went out of the presence of the Sanhedrin rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Christ. Peter is saying to us, rejoice. Don't shrink back in shame. Rejoice. Verse 14 says, if you're insulted or reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Remember, Jesus had said the very same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, he said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
He goes on to say here, if you're suffering for your faith, you need to rejoice because it means the Spirit of God and the Spirit of glory rest on you. Let me explain that a little bit. No one suffers, no one suffers and is persecuted for being like the world because the world loves its own. But if you suffer for the name of Christ, it's because you're God's child and you've come to look more like Him. His Spirit rests on you. In other words, His work has become evident in you. His Spirit has turned you into somebody who looks much different than you used to look. You have the fruit of the Spirit now at work in you. And it's evident to others. That's why they're persecuting you. There's no bigger compliment that somebody could give to you than to say, you know what, you look like Christ. That's how the Christians got their name. Little, little, there go little Christ, Christians. The perfect illustration here is Stephen in the book of Acts. When Stephen was arrested and appeared before the Sanhedrin, it said that all who sat in the Sanhedrin that day looked intently at Stephen and his face shone as the face of an angel. The glory of God and the Spirit of God were resting on him. Peter is saying when you suffer for your faith in Christ and you're steadfast, you're able to rejoice, it will be apparent to all. Who you belong to. You're blessed. Now folks that says volumes to us today. About how you and I respond. To trials and suffering and persecution. We can get angry. We can seek revenge. We can try to get even. And all of those responses. The world will not see Christ. But if we respond instead. With the fruit of the spirit. It will be apparent. You see, how we respond to hardship and trials and tribulation is also a witness. We are to witness verbally with our lips, but we also witness with our lives. And when we are opposed for our faith and we remain steadfast, that in and of itself speaks volume. Peter goes on to say in verse 15 and following that, that we're to make sure that we're not suffering because we've done wrong. Sometimes Christians whine and complain when we need to see in certain circumstances we might have only brought it on ourselves. If you've done wrong and you're suffering because of that, Peter said you just get what you deserve. Sometimes we're great at playing the martyr. We might gossip about people and then wonder why nobody trusts us. We might backstab and then wonder why we don't have any friends. We might be hateful or sour and then wonder why nobody wants to be around us. But if you suffer for righteousness, rejoice. In verse 17 he talks about judgment that begins at the household of God. Peter is reminding us here that suffering is usually timely and necessary. Believers need hurtful times to be purified. God uses suffering as a tool to sanctify and cleanse and refine his people. We often suffer specifically because we are God's children. And God may be using that discipline 
discipline in your life because He loves you. For the Christian, God is doing all of this for your good. Romans 8.28 But what about the unbeliever? The unbeliever will experience a certain amount of difficulty in his own life just by nature of the fact that we live in a fallen world. And so there's going to be trials the unbeliever goes through too. But there's nothing necessarily redemptive in his trials unless God is using that as a wake-up call in his life. But the child of God can have the assurance that he goes from discipline to glory. The unbeliever goes from discipline to hell. It only gets worse. We go from bad to good. From earth to glory. They go from tribulation here to the fires of hell. It's like Peter is saying, you need to think about this, at least, at least, at least, there's a redemptive purpose at work in your life. Peter goes on to say that the righteous are saved with difficulty. It, this would be a very easy verse to, to misinterpret. I wish most of the translations had done a little better job uh, with it here. Peter is simply giving a statement of reality. He's saying it is with difficulty and trials and hardship that the righteous finally get to heaven. In other words, you come to faith in Christ and when you come to faith in Christ and you live maybe the next 40, 50, 60 years, if you're faithful for Christ, many times it's going to be an uphill climb. It's going to be a battle. That's what he's saying. At times you might even want to give up. What he's saying, if that's the experience of the man of God, what in the world will the unrighteous do? Think about it. The unrighteous have nobody to turn to. They go through trial and tribulation and hardship. They have nobody to turn to. They don't, they don't turn to God. They don't have God. They don't have Christian brothers and sisters. They're on their own. What's going to become of them? If life is hard enough for believers, what about the person who has no hope in the world and doesn't have God? It's like Peter is saying to Christians, Christians, you need to, you need to get a little better perspective on things. In light of what other people are going through, what you may be going through is not so bad after all, is it? Think about it. And think about the unbeliever who dies without Christ and goes to hell. You might be having a hard time, sure, but God is using that for a refining purpose in your life to build maturity and Christ-likeness in you so you'll see Him one day and your glory will be all the greater. You'll get reward. Well done, good and faithful servant. It might be hard now, but keep things in perspective. Maybe you need a little better perspective this morning. Life's not so bad after all, is it? It's really not. Secondly, he talks about the patience in suffering. 
verse 19. Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. First of all, we see here that we are to commit ourselves to God. Contrary to what your circumstances may be communicating to you and contrary to how you might feel at the moment, you need to know that God has not abandoned you. God is faithful. God's faithful. What would have happened to Job had Job listened to his wife? What if, what if he had listened to Mrs. Job? You remember what Mrs. Job said? Job, you just need to curse God and die. Aren't you glad he didn't listen to her? We wouldn't have the book of Job. We wouldn't know how things ended up with Job. Was God faithful to Job? Yes. Had God abandoned Job? No. Did God have an ultimate plan and purpose through Job's trials? Yes. Don't listen to the naysayers. Don't listen to those who might say, Where is your God? Your God is right in the middle of your suffering. He's right there with you in your trial and tribulation. And so he's saying, first of all, you need to entrust yourself to him. It's interesting the Greek word he uses here. It is the very same Greek word used of Jesus on the cross in Luke's gospel when Jesus was about to breathe his last. Remember what he said? Father, into your hands I what? I commit my spirit. The Greek word there is entrust. Father, I entrust myself to you. It's the same word as Jesus on the cross. Peter is saying you need to entrust yourself to God for safekeeping in the midst of your trial. God hasn't abandoned you. He's with you. He's faithful He's faithful. Whatever God allows to enter into your life, He's there with you. He's a faithful shepherd who will never leave you and never forsake you. Let trials, let hardship, let opposition be a reason why you entrust yourself to God. You don't see what's up. But God sees what's up. God sees the final chapter, what he's trying to do in your life. And then secondly here, he points out that we are to continue to do good. And the way the Greek grammar is, it's not two separate thoughts. It's not entrust yourself to God and continue to do good. It's entrust yourself to God by continuing to do good. In other words, continuing to live for Him and continuing to do good shows that you are entrusting yourself to God. Don't set a date to have a pity party and send out invitations for people to come. Entrust yourself to God and keep on keeping on. Verse 19, in other words, is a statement about 
patience. You don't understand at the moment what you're going through. I don't understand what, why I might be going through something. But if you're God's child, you can know He's with you. So keep entrusting yourself to God and keep serving Him. Because in the end, it's going to be worth it all. This morning, are you going through a trial? Are you going through a trial that you need to commit yourself over to God in and trust that trial to Him? And ask Him to give you a teachable spirit in the midst of it. What might He be trying to teach you? Or maybe you've expressed a bad attitude in the midst of your trials and you realize now that it would be good if you practiced a little better perspective. And so your prayer maybe needs to be, God, help, help my attitude and my heart. I not only give you this trial and what I'm going through, but God, I give you my attitude as I go through it. Maybe you've been somebody who's come to expect that things are supposed to always go your way and life's supposed to be easy. And perhaps this week what you need to reflect on a little more is Jesus' words that if we're going to follow Him, we've got to deny ourselves and pick up our cross and follow Him. There's a cost in being a disciple. Father, thank you again for these words. And as we go into the time of celebrating the Lord's Supper, we thank you that Jesus was faithful, that Jesus did not give up, that he entrusted himself to his heavenly Father, and he continued to do your plan for him. Thank you for that. May we look to him and depend upon him and allow him to do his work in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.